Welcome to the branch, everyone. Thank you guys for coming and being here at the gathering with us. Um, like Emily said, my name is Peter. If you don't know me, hi, I'm Peter. Um, and basically, I am not the main pastor here. So if this is your first time, I'm sorry to disappoint you. If it's your second time, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, but we actually have somewhat of a preaching team um, that we kind of combine together to bring the word. We hold each other accountable. Um, I have the great honor to be on that preaching team. Um, and so I'm not the usual pastor here, but I'm so glad that you have joined us. I'm so glad that you are here to hear the word of God. Um, and I'm hoping that I don't screw it up too much. Um, so uh, also bear with me. I have notes. Uh, my printer was out of ink. So I'm going to try to read off this screen. Um, so please bear with me on that. I promise I'm not unprepared. I just spent so much time preparing the notes, I didn't think to print them out. Um, that's kind of the, the lesson of my life, if you will. Um, so I'm an apprentice here at the branch, which basically means I'm in the pipeline. Um, if you don't know much about the pipeline or if this is your first time hearing about it, I don't know where you've been. But uh, our pipeline is basically a training ground. Um, Gabe, when he kind of started the branch and had this, this idea to start it here in Dahlonega, it was started with the mind of sending people out. We want, to, we want to plant churches, and a pipeline kind of helps us be able to do that. Um, so basically, I'm in the pipeline, which means that I am hoping to one day start a church. Um, and I have no idea what that looks like, and that's terrifying. Um, I just want you guys to know that. Uh, I feel that call on my life to plant a church, and I don't know when that's going to be or how that's going to be, but I feel that call. Um, I feel called to go. I feel called to plant a church and to pour into people and to reach the unreached peoples of the world and, and be a part of what God is doing in that. And I also, at the same time, feel completely unqualified to do that. And I think we're all a little bit in that space. Um, and there's the thing that we're going to talk about today is kind of living in that space. It's living in this space of of we are called to do something and, and the world is kind of in, in shame and in ruin um, as it stands today. Um, Christianity as a whole stands in a little bit of ruin as it stands today. And that's scary and that's sad. And we need to mourn that, but at the same time, God promises victory. And he wants us all to be a part of that victory. And he wants to use us in that victory so how do we live in that middle ground? How do we connect those two points? And we're going to see that in Nehemiah today. So today is the first day we're starting Nehemiah. If you want to go ahead and start flipping there, Nehemiah 1 and 2. It's kind of where we're going to sit for the majority of the day. While you're flipping there, just as far as history goes, we just finished Ezra. Um, basically, a lot of historians and a lot of people always preach Ezra and Nehemiah together. They're basically kind of the same book. Um, they go hand in hand together because it's a continuation of the story that starts in Ezra. So we preached all the way through Ezra and got all the way through it. And um, basically this, what is about to happen, only happens about 17 years after Gabe left off last week. It's only 17 years. And I think that's important to remember because a lot of times in the Bible when we switch books, most of the time when you switch books, it's like 50 years later, 100 years later, three generations later, this happens. But this is a continuation of the same story. 
where we talked about in Ezra, we've got the two exiles of the Israelites going back to Jerusalem. This is the end of it. This is the third one. This is, this is the chance for them to go back and really finish rebuilding the kingdom of God. And so that's where we are in Nehemiah. So we're going to go ahead and dive into the word. Nehemiah 1, we're going to go all the way through 1, so bear with me. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now what happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now Pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Dear God, thank you for this gathering of people who have come forward to hear your word spoken and to see what you have for them. I pray that I will be a good middleman, that anything that is not of you, that anything is, that is of my own volition uh, will fall upon deaf ears, that it will not be heard, because this is your word. It is my job to just tell your word and your story and what you've bestowed upon me to share with your people. Lord, it's an honor that I do not deserve. So I thank you for using me and calling me to this. I know that you are victorious and I will go forth and boldly proclaim your word because of who you are and I know that I have you behind me, not because of anything that I have within me. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So, this book is named Nehemiah. So we kind of need to figure out who the heck Nehemiah is, right? Um, Nehemiah, there's not a whole lot about him that we kind of find out through historians and history books. But we can see some stuff just from this passage. So Nehemiah is currently the cupbearer to the king. That's the last thing he said, right? He is working in the king's court. Um, for King Artaxerxes. Um, say that five times fast, or read it five times fast. It doesn't look like it sounds like Artaxerxes, but it does. So he's cupbearer to the king, which means that he has worked his way up to being one of the most trustworthy people in the king's court. 
He's trusted with the life of the king. It is his job to pour the wine, to try the wine, make sure it's not poisoned, and then give it to the king. Anyone who has access to Nehemiah has access to the king. So he's worked his way up, which what, what that means is Nehemiah, who we can see is an Israelite because he knows the words of Moses, in the first two exiles, did not leave the kingdom to go to Jerusalem. Even though all of the Jews were called out of where they were and to Jerusalem, he didn't leave. And whether that was kind of his own choice or the, the choice of his household, he stayed put where he is. He stayed exactly where he was and worked his way up. So it's very interesting when we see what his response is to the news about Jerusalem. I mean, he, he, calls, uh, he calls Hananiah his brother. Now, most people... Most people have speculated Hananiah is not his actual physical brother, but a brother in Christ, which means he's part of the Jewish people. He's part of Israel, probably coming to the capital of Susa for something, came to Hananiah. Uh, Hananiah came to Susa, and Nehemiah asked, hey, how is Jerusalem doing? Because he cares. He wonders. He's interested about what is going on in a place where he does not dwell. And so it can be misconstrued that Nehemiah, staying put where he is, didn't care about the state of Jerusalem, but we see the exact opposite here, which is very interesting. So if you look at verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He wept and mourned for days. Days. Has anyone gone through a trauma that has led you to cry for days? Show of hands. Anyone? It's okay if not. Don't feel judged. This is a safe place. Um, yeah. That's, that's something that hurts your soul to the point that you can't really even function outside of it. That for days you are laid on your face and crying and it comes in waves and you start to feel a little bit better. And then another wave of grief hits. That's what causes you to cry for days. Something that hurts you to your core, that feels like it hurts a part of who you are. That's the kind of weeping that we see here from Nehemiah. Nehemiah cares about Scripture and he cares about the kingdom of God. We can tell that through his prayer because in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy you see the words of his prayer. His prayer is being quoted all of, all of that hope and things that you see in this prayer from Nehemiah, it is being quoted from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, 64. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods of wood and stone which you have never heard of before. He uses those words in verse 8. And in verse 10, he literally quotes Deuteronomy 9, 29, but they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nehemiah knows the law of the Lord. He has studied. He has studied in Scripture. And even though he doesn't live in Jerusalem, he is a part of the Jewish people, and he knows that. And he knows how important the kingdom of Israel is to God. He knows how important the land of Jerusalem is to God because God bestowed it upon his people. And so knowing that it is crumbled and in ruin, that the state of Jerusalem is so so bad that his friend and his brother, Hanani, said, yeah, the exiled people are in bad shape. They probably won't survive. 
That's how bad the state of Jerusalem is. That's how bad the walls are. That's how bad it is that the gates have been burned down. And that hurts Nehemiah to his core. And so from that, I think it's a, a beautiful response and a beautiful thing to study of that, that should be how we respond to the state of the kingdom of God. I think it is so easy for us to stay complacent where we are that I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of saying, I go to church every Sunday, I've got my MC, I've got my DNA, I work at a Christian camp, I work in, I'm, I'm around Christians all day, every day. My personal walk with the Lord is not in trouble. But can I go the next step and say, so theirs doesn't matter to me? How many of us are living in that, that lie today? Well, I go to church and I'm, I, I study my Bible every day, so why does it matter that I share the word with that person? I think that's so many people's response to where the kingdom is right now, the state of the kingdom of the Lord, because we are living in it. He lives through us and in us now. And we are all so complacent where we are to stay where we are, to stay in the king's court because we've built this life that's comfortable for us. But Nehemiah has built this life that's comfortable for him, and it hurts him to his very core that the state of the Lord the state of the kingdom of the Lord is in ruin. And then I think there's another response on the other opposite end of anger. How easy would it be for Nehemiah to say, those dang Jewish people who moved to Jerusalem and refused to build the wall to protect their own? Or how dare those kingdoms around Israel even think about possibly attacking Israel while their walls are down? How dare those people attack Christianity in the church out there? How dare our politicians pass laws against the church that are against our own morality? It's so easy to get into a place of anger, especially where we live now. As divisive as America is, as divisive as our politics are, as divisive as just society is as a whole, heck, as divisive as the church as a whole is now. It is so easy to blame others and point the finger and get angry, but we see the proper response here is Nehemiah's weeping. He falls to his face before the Lord and says, I am so, so sickened by what has happened, but not in, not in an angry way. I am sad that I am still here in the king's court and did not go to Jerusalem to help rebuild that wall. So what is your response to the current state of the kingdom of the Lord? Are you angry? Do you feel anything at all? Are you complacent? Or are you weeping? Are you internally looking at yourself and saying, my sins and the sins of my father's house have hurt the Lord? And I'm not even going to pass judgment on anyone else who walked past that wall and didn't think to rebuild it. I'm not going to judge anyone else who decided, you know, my faith's not worth protecting, but have I protected my own faith? Have I protected what God is doing in this building? Am I just angry that you're attacking, or is it my fault for not saving the person who's attacking us as a church? So that's the first step that we see here. And, and, and what we're talking about is, is living in between this, this state of shame and ruin as we see in, uh, in verse 3. Jerusalem is in great trouble and shame. So they're living in great trouble and in shame. 
But we also know the promises of the Lord and the victory that will come. And we can see that lived out in the end of chapter 2, verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. There are two dichotomous statements. Two things that conflict with each other, and we're living in the middle of them. So how do we do that? We're looking at Nehemiah. The first step, weep and mourn for the state that the kingdom is in. And look internally to yourself. Stop being complacent with what is going on around us. Stop getting angry with others when the real problem is us and our own hearts. Start there. But what's important to remember about Nehemiah is this next step where his prayer is not a hopeless one. Because even if you do weep and mourn for the state of the world, are you just complaining and and weeping and sitting in this sadness of, well, everyone else is going to hell and that's just how it is and it's so sad. It hurts me that my friends are going to hell. Or do you have a hopeful prayer coming from that? Like I said, in Nehemiah's prayer, if you read it, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded you, uh, and the rules that commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is reminding himself in his sadness, in his mourning, of the promises that God has given him. The promises that he knows from scripture but that the people that have come before him from Moses, he knows the promises God has. And that's what he's reminding himself of here. He mourns, he's sad, but there's hope. Because the Lord has promised, even though you dwell far away from me, even when you ignore my commandments and are outcast, I have upheld the other side of the promise. When you talk about Genesis, when the original promise that Abraham made with God and God walks through the center of the cows that they split open, which is kind of this resemblance of, I'm going to uphold both sides of this deal. I will make a promise to you that if you uphold my commands, I will bless you. And if you do not, I will kill you. And God said, if you uphold my commands, I will bless you. And if you don't uphold my commands, I will kill myself. That's what God did in that moment. And that is what Nehemiah is hearkening back to here is even though Israel has come far from you and he starts with blaming himself and his own father's house, they have sinned against God. He says, even though we're far from you, God, remember, remember you told us that you would bring us back together and we would dwell in the place where your name is. 
You will, you will bring your people scattered from all the realms of heaven all the way back to you and your name will dwell with them and in them in the land that you have given to them. It's a hopeful prayer. And Nehemiah stays in prayer for a long time. So we're going to venture into to chapter 2 here, starting in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, something that most people wouldn't know here is that that first part in the month of Nisan, it's not talking about a car. It is a month. Um, And then in the beginning of chapter 1, he says the month of Kislev. Those two months in biblical terms are about four months apart. So this takes place over four months. Nehemiah is still sad four months later while he's in the presence of the king. He says, I prayed and I fasted from this day. He prayed and he fasted for four months. He goes forth in prayer, in hopeful prayer, and fasts, imploring the Lord, what am I to do? How can I reconcile this? How can I fix this with your kingdom? How can I get you to take us back and gather us back together? He implores God, in those four months. And that's, that's just it. We have this sadness about the, the kingdom of God, but when it comes time to fix the kingdom of God, we can't fix it on our own. God is going to fix the kingdom of God, but he'll choose to use every one of you in this building if you so let him. But we have to go forward in prayer first. You have to know that the time is coming to take action. Action will come. Nehemiah is a man of action. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, we must mourn. We must look internally and repent. And then we must prayerfully go forward. We must enter into this four-month period of fasting and praying, God, what are we to do? And it may not take four months. It may take two years, and it may take one week. But you have to seek the Lord in that time. You have to seek out what his will is, what his plan for you is, and move forward into that. That's the only way to do it. If you guys will flip to Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. This is is basically talking about Ezra, which we just talked about. The first exile of all of the Jews back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, God's house. So it's Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is a part of scripture that's talking about that first exile of Ezra. And it's looking forward to that, and and we see that complete in Ezra, but this is something that if it applies to the first exile, should apply to the third as well with Nehemiah. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. That's the first step of restoration. The first step of restoring the kingdom, of bringing the people back from the far reaches of the earth, back to the land they dwell in, the first step is pray to me. We receive the news in sorrow and in mourning and then we go to prayer. And we seek God's will. We seek where he is. This is an instance just like in Nehemiah where Israel has strayed. And if you seek him, you will find him. You must pray before you jump straight into action. Because God will also provide the timing in which you move into action. He will provide it himself In those verses that we just read um, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8, you see Nehemiah boldly approach his king and say, this is what I need. I must go do this thing or my heart will not be glad again. But he doesn't do it until the king asks, why are you sad? God opens that door. He provides that timing. Because in this process of restoration, in this process of getting to the place where we know God will be victorious and we want to be used in that, the way we are used in that is we see with the state of the world, its brokenness, and we feel called to it. Our heart breaks for it. Our heart breaks with it. And then we go into prayer. It is so easy for us to jump all of these steps and be like, you know what? I'm going to go do it now. And my want to start a church, it would be so easy for me to be like, you know what? Me and Addie, we're going to move to this other city. We're just going to open this church in a gym. You can do it. We've seen it happen. We'll just rent out a gym every week, and we'll just invite people to start coming. If that was my response to the sadness that I have because of the brokenness of the world, I'd be a terrible pastor. Trust me. You guys don't have to, don't have to tell me. I would be an awful pastor. I must take the time to pray and seek out what the Lord has for me. And the Lord will provide his own timing. To this day, I still want to start a church, and I don't know when that's going to be. I have no idea. In a couple of months, if someone approaches me, or Gabe says, you know what, it's time to plan our, our next church in four months, and I want you to go and do it, I'll do it. I don't know if I'll be ready, but God's timing is perfect whether we know it or not. So maybe I'll say, yeah, let's do it, I'm ready. Or 
If it's another three years and Gabe says, you know what, we don't have anyone to go plant a church that I feel confident in, or I get called to another church somewhere, that I go and I'm like, man, this is where I need to be. This is, this is where God is filling my spirit. This is where he's pulling me to go, and I end up there, and I'm just a member in the church for 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then way down the road when I actually have money, because I don't have any right now, he says, hey, go start this church. Pour all of this money that you've saved over these years, pour it into a coffee shop where you also hold a church. But it's 30 years down the road. God's timing is perfect, and I must wait for it. We can change the world, but only with God's help. We can change the world, but we can't be too quick to jump on the let's change the world train. It will not go as you hope, I promise. Because the only way to be as bold as Nehemiah is, is to have the Lord standing behind you. He's like that big brother. When you confront the bully and you've got your big brother who's like there, it's not bold if you have your big brother behind you, is it? You're not being brave. Because you know if it fails, your brother's going to beat up the bully anyway, regardless. And that's what we see here is everyone talks about the boldness of Nehemiah. I mean, if you think about it, this is like in our terms, I work at a Christian summer camp, Strong Rock Camp, right down the road. That's like me approaching my boss and saying, hey, you know that other camp that keeps stealing campers from us and is doing like really well and, and taking a lot of our money? Well, their gate fell down and, and their lodge is starting to kind of crumble a little bit. So I'm thinking I'll take three years to go and help them rebuild it. If you could just keep paying me, that'd be awesome. And if you could, if you could call over there and let them know I'm coming and just, I'll, I'll just go over there for, for three years. You pay me while I work for them and allow them to steal more campers from you and hurt your camp. Is that Okay. That takes some boldness. I work for a great guy, but he's not that good. He's not that nice of a guy. That's essentially what Nehemiah is doing here. And we talk about the boldness of Nehemiah and how, how boldly he approaches the king and says, you know what, this is what I want. But he waits for the God's, God's timing and he approaches in prayer. If you read in verse four, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. Nehemiah takes a moment and pauses mid-request mid to the king to pray. That's like, hey, Addy, can I ask you a question? Can I? Okay. All right, can we go to Moe's after church? Awesome. And that looks silly, right? And I'm sure it didn't look quite that silly when Nehemiah did it, but what if that's how we approached every single step in our, our plan, every single step, and after we mourn where the world is and we know that we want to help the world and we move from that point and we, we pray constantly for as long as we can and as soon as the moment comes, we don't jump straight in, we stop and say, God, this is of you. And if this is of you, let it succeed, and if it is not of you, let it fail miserably. What if every question we asked, we stopped and prayed before it? Every single one. So we talk about the boldness of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah isn't bold. He's just confident in the Lord. He's not bold and brave. He's confident, God will shut this door. 
And if King Artaxerxes tries to shut this door, God will open this door, however he might. He is not bold. He's just certain of God's power. He is certain that God is the true king he is serving, not Artaxerxes. So are you certain of God's power in your call and where you're headed? Are you certain of the power of the Lord that you can boldly move forward? Because I'm not. I'll be honest with you guys. I'll admit that sin to you guys. I feel like I have been called to be a pastor. I feel like I have called, been called to share the word of God. And yet every time I get up here, I feel so unequipped. And I feel so unfaithful. And I'm so not certain of how I'm going to do it. I don't have the boldness of this is God's command and I am certain of his power in my life. I'm certain of his call on my life. I can't get there. And I'm gonna continually pray until I can, until I have the boldness to come before the throne and say, you know what? I'm gonna go do this, king. And whether you let me or not, God's got me. You know what? I'm gonna go start this business because that's what God wants me to do. And whether it fails or whether it tumbles, God is with me. Are you certain of God's power and doing what he tells you to do, or are you just memorizing what he tells you to do? Because we memorize the Bible. I recently heard a Francis Chan sermon based on that exact topic of like, what if, what if I told my daughter, go clean your room, and two hours she comes back, and I say, oh, did you clean your room? She said, no, but I remember that you told me to. I can even tell you in Greek. Later on, I'm going to have some friends over, and we're going to talk about what it would look like if I did clean my room. How often do we do that with God's commands? When he commands us to go do something, are we just memorizing scripture and saying, scripture says this. I haven't cleaned my room, though. I haven't gone and made disciples like Jesus told me to, but I know that he said it. I remember him saying it, and it's very important. Nehemiah goes and he does. So at this place in redemptive history in Nehemiah, the Lord dwells within the temple. He dwells behind the curtain. This is still in the fall. This is before Jesus has died. This is before we've been redeemed of our sins and the Lord has come to live within us. And so that's, that's where they are. The Lord dwells there. And so for them to not protect where the Lord dwells is so sinful. For them to not build a protective wall and build the city back, back further than its former glory, that's sinful. We see that here in Nehemiah. He feels that sin and is heartbroken by it. Now our current place in redemptive history, the curtain's been torn, guys. The Lord no longer dwells in a building. He no longer dwells in just the temple. He dwells in every single one of his believers. Every single one. So the current state of the kingdom of the Lord, instead of in terms of buildings and walls, is in terms of his congregation, this congregation, churches, the Christians that claim the words of God. That is the current state. And I think we can all agree that the current state is pretty sad. 
We have false prophets preaching just parts of this book so they can get more members. We have people twisting the words of Jesus in order for people to come to church more because they're going to only preach the good parts. They're going to preach the good promises of God and not the hard parts that he calls us to. We've got people attacking our morality in Washington, passing laws to attack everything that we believe here. But instead of getting mad at those people in Washington, why aren't we doing everything we can to try to save those people in Washington? Are we pointing them to the Lord? Or are we just getting mad and yelling at them, and how dare they attack us? How dare they attack us, but we didn't build up our defenses or our walls? How can you blame someone for attacking you when you didn't build up your walls? The last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven is go forth and make disciples. Great commission. That is our command. That is what we've been told to do. We have an immediate call to go forth and make disciples and strengthen the kingdom of God. So you may be in several different places right now. Maybe, maybe along this timeline of, of what this looks like, you haven't even mourned your own sins yet. You haven't even mourned and wept for what your issues are and what you've done. You're not sad about the kingdom of God. Either you're complacent where you are because your religion is good and your spirituality is fine, so why care about someone else's? Or you're mad at others because they don't believe what I believe and that's their fault for some reason. Even though I haven't shared what I believe with them, for them to not believe what I believe, that's their fault. That's their sin. I implore you to look internally and weep with, with you and God and see where your sins are. Blame your house first and then remember the promises of God. He will restore his kingdom if you're, if you're still in that moment of prayer and you're like, I've been praying for so long, Peter. I've been sitting here and, and struggling with God on what I'm supposed to do and I feel called to do this, so I'm gonna go do it. That's fine. If he opens the door, go do it. If he doesn't open the door, you better sit your butt back down and keep praying. You better be in constant communication with the Lord, the God of the universe, the creator of all things. You have a direct line to him and for you to not use it, when you're talking about going forth and making disciples and going forth in that mission that you've been called to, why would you not use it? Or maybe the door has opened. Maybe God has opened the door right in front of you and someone's been like, hey, why are you feeling so sad? And you do that thing that we all do sometimes. Oh, I'm not sad, I'm fine. Really? Really? Because your face says otherwise. Your body language says otherwise. Sometimes I don't even know I'm sad. And Addie comes home and says, what's wrong? And I say, nothing. She goes, no, what's wrong? And then I start talking. I'm like, man, today was a bad day. Maybe that's what you need. The door is open. God has made it clear to you. It's your time. You've been praying for this. You've been praying to go and make disciples. You've been praying to help the sick. You've been praying to help the homeless. You've been praying to stop abortion. I'm opening this door for you. And then you close it and say, no, I'm, I'm good just praying about it. What we see is Nehemiah goes and he builds the wall. Nehemiah takes action. That's what you need to wrestle with in, 
in yourselves is where are you along this timeline? Have you, are you properly sad about the state of the Lord and his kingdom? Have you prayed about what your call is in that kingdom? How can you help restore the kingdom? Are you taking action or are you about to take action? Where are you in that? Mull over that. And if you're not in the kingdom of the Lord at all, if you haven't trusted the Lord yet with your life, my heart breaks with you. And I'm very specific when I say breaks with you. It's not, I don't break for you because that implies that I'm not broken. I am broken by your brokenness. I am weeping with you in your sin. It's like you're standing knee deep in a pool of water. I'm not standing on the land saying, hey, get out of there. I'm wading in and carrying you to the Lord who's the only one who can pull you out. And I want to say I'm sorry for not building the wall sooner. I'm sorry that I've been so sad and so mournful and sitting and praying instead of doing that you haven't heard the true gospel of Christ. That he came and he died for you and forgave all of your sins so that you can be with the God of heaven. I'm sad that you've, if I've done anything to keep you from hearing that, I'm sad if I haven't told you that yet, even if this is your first time. Why have I not sought you out? I live in Dahlonega. Why have I not found you and shared the gospel? I'm sorry for that. Those are the things that we need to mull over as we kind of transition to this time of communion and the band's gonna come up. If you're a believer and you're about to take communion, think about that. Think about the current state of the kingdom of the Lord. God has restored it over and over and over again, Jesus being the prime example. And he wants to restore it again, and he wants you to be a part of it. What's holding you up? What's keeping you from being a part of the victory and the restoration of the kingdom of the Lord? Think about that. What is your role in it? It's so easy for me wanting to be a pastor to say, you know what, I'm not equipped for this, and there's so many good pastors out there, let's let them lead the sheep. There's super churches out there reaching tons of people. This church is amazing. Why would I ever leave it? Why would I ever go anywhere else? Gabe is doing an amazing thing, and we get new people in here. He's sharing the gospel in one place. Why go start another church when I'm not equipped to do that? What if Nehemiah had said, there's other brick masons out there who are actually good at it. I just give a cup to a king. I make good money. I'm, I'm solid where I am. And he never rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. What is your action? The boldness and the confidence that God is powerful over all. He will bring you to victory. Even after this state of ruin he will bring it to victory and he wants to use you. Are you letting him? Dear God, thank you for your choice to use your people in your kingdom to do your work. God, let us not hold you back from it. Let us not hurt your gospel, and your good news and your word. Let us not hurt the kingdom that you are trying to build by saying, someone else can do it. I'm good where I am. 
Let us mourn the state of your kingdom and hopefully go forward, prayerfully go forward and boldly take action and do what you've called us to do in your perfect timing. Thank you for the call that you have personally given to me in my life. You're such a good father. I can't fathom why on earth you'd ever want to use me. This broken and sinful man. And yet you do. And you call me out of that sin. You call me to be better. And you call me to do better. Lord, I pray that we do. All of us in this room, that we do better. That we see that you're the only thing that can redeem us. The only thing that gives us worth is you and your son's death. God, anything that is not of you that was spoken today, let it stay in this building. But everything that is of you, take it out of this building and let it be shared. Let it be lived. In your holy name I pray. Amen.